0: and before we start, we will take questions that are specific to what we went over to now, and then in the end we'll take general questions, inshallah, in the end we'll take general questions relating to anything that you guys want to ask about. Okay? So does anyone have any questions up until here about anything that we've studied so far? Any questions? Any questions? Okay. Alhamdulillah. So the great imams, we were speaking about the four schools, uh, the, um, the four imams and their schools. There's actually a book written about this that goes in a lot of detail. Uh, it's a very good book. It's called The Four Imams and Their Schools. It's written by uh, Sheikh Jibril Haddad. You can find it on, Facebook, on uh, Amazon. You can find it on Amazon and you could purchase it from there. It's called The Four Imams and Their Schools. It's a very detailed analysis of each one of these schools. Uh, a lot of information uh, in there. Um, I, for the first few moment, minutes, I will spend some time telling you about uh, these imams. In the book, on page 175 onward, he goes into the bios of some of these imams uh, of these four imams the first of these is sayyidna imam abu hanifa He's considered from the second generation of successors min atba' al-tabi'in the second generation of successors he didn't uh, he was alive during time of some of the companions but he did not actually meet them so who are the companions that he lived to their time period, Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Abi Awfa, Sahil ibn Sa'd Al-Sa'idi. These are some of the companions that were alive. And that, of course that companion that I told you, his name was actually not Amr ibn Wathila, Amr ibn Wathila. Sorry, Amr ibn Wathila. But anyway, um, uh, he did not meet any of the companions of the Prophet. Uh, some of them said he did, but in actuality, according to most, he is considered from the second generation of successors. So, not from the companions, not from the tabi'een, from atba'at tabi'een. right, Imam Abu Hanifa was someone who he was, he followed in his father's profession. As you can see, his father was born Muslim. um, And it was said that he was never a bondsman. Okay, he wasn't wasn't into slavery. Uh, He was a merchant of silk cloth. He was khazaz. That's actually the profession that his son Abu Hanifa also took on. Imam Abu Hanifa was known to be a merchant of silk clothing. And he was known for his honest transactions. He was actually a faqih who was a merchant first and foremost. Um, And later on he became a great scholar of Islam. So he was a merchant first and then he became a great scholar of Islam. And he was held in such high regard by the scholars of his time, like Ibn al-Mubarak. He said, "Fqahun Abu Hanifa." Um, they had, an, and then Imam al-Shafi'i himself said, "People are dependent on Abu Hanifa in fiqh. Nasu fil ala Abi Hanifa. Right? He had two main students. Who are these two main students? Abu Yusuf and Muhanna, Muhammad ibn al-Hassan. These are the two main students of Imam Abu Hanifa. And he was offered to be a judge for Kufa, but he refused. And he was struck because of his refusal by the, um, by the governor of Al-Kufa. He was struck and beaten for refusing. Why did he refuse to be the judge? You will find a general sentiment among many of the great scholars of the earlier days. They wanted to be far, far away from the powers that be from the powers of authority. Why? Because they were afraid that they would be forced into situations that would compromise their values and their beliefs. They didn't want to be in this type of situation. So they would avoid the doors of the khulafa. They would avoid this so that they aren't um, in a situation that forced them to say things that were not in accordance to their true beliefs and commitments. So he refused to, he refused to be um, the qadi of, uh, of al-kufa. And uh, a lot is said about, the, you know, Im- these imams, they were examples in knowledge and they were also examples in spirituality. In Abu Hanifa, he was actually known to be someone who supported financially his students of knowledge. Uh, Abu Hanifa, uh, Abu Yusuf and Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Hassan and his other students, he would financially support them Uh, So he was in a position of giving, not taking. And this is part of the honor and integrity of the earlier generations that they were able to maintain for themselves, deen and dunya. right? Um, And and some people claim that Imam Abu Hanifa had a very weak grasp of hadith. And of course this is not true at all. Um, In actuality, he was in an area, Kufa, Iraq, was known from the earliest days as being a very very difficult region in the Muslim ummah, where there was a lot of conflict and strife and turmoil and infighting, it was always. Um, and that's why, uh, of course, this is not to say anything. This is what they said. It's not to say anything about anyone from that region. We have great imams that came out of that region, but they said from long time ago, Ahlu al-Iraq, Ahlu. Uh, Nifaqin wa shiqaq They said about the people of Iraq They're known for their turmoil, their fighting, their hypocrisy And so on and so forth Again, this is not talking about people in general This is talking about the general mood and attitude in the area Many sects came in this area And there had to be uh, um, um, uh, Logical responses Uh, reason employed to defeat their arguments. Um, A lot of the Mu'tazilite thoughts that later came on came from this area. And also the other sects, even we know from the later part of the Khulafat and their time, Sayyidina al-Husayn and the stories that surrounds him from the people of Kufa abandoning him and leaving him to be massacred by the oppressive ruler of that area at the time. Uh, and there's many other stories relating to it. But anyway, so he was in a very difficult area. That's why he employed reason and logic much more than hadith. It wasn't because he was weak in hadith. He was actually a scholar, in a, a well-rounded scholar and, and well-versed in all different parts of Islam. Okay, so now we said Imam Abu Hanifa in Kufa. Imam Malik in Medina. right? Imam Abu Hanifa had two students, Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan. We have someone who came along later on, Imam al-Shafi'i, who was between the two. So we have Imam Malik, who was the teacher of al-Shafi'i, right? And al-Shafi'i took from the, the head of the school of Hadith, and then he also was a student of Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan, he took from them, From the other school. So you see, you guys are following with me. We have the school of Hadith. And the school of opinion. And we have the heads of both. Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik. Imam Abu Hanifa passed away in 150. Before Imam Shafi'i was born. Imam Shafi'i came in the middle. He studied from both sides of the school. So he introduced a new type of thought that was both based in hadith and based in reason and analogy. He took from both schools. And that's why uh, his madhab, as a third madhab, came unique between the two. And we find that Imam Ahmed followed the footsteps of Imam Shafi'i. And he was, Imam Ahmed was also known for his scholarship in hadith. So we have Abu Yusuf, Muhammad ibn Hassan. And then we have uh, Imam Malik, as we said, Imam Malik, a very, very great, illustrious scholar. Uh, Imam Malik um, uh, is actually an a great example in both ilm and amal as well. Imam Malik uh, was actually... Um, uh, uh, no, he was he, he. took his knowledge from Nafi' Mawla Ibn Umar We mentioned his name earlier on He was one of those Tabi'een that we mentioned So he learned from that generation He was also from the third gen- the second generation Atba' al-Tabi'een And um, he, he authored this book called Al-Muwatta He spent 40 years putting this book together Muwatta Imam Malik, it's a book that you can access now It's in Fiqh and Hadith and he spent forty years authoring it. Um, Imam Malik was an example in spirituality too. He was tested. He sorry? Uh, he was tested. Uh this is in the year one forty seven, towards the end of his life. duriba wa al He was struck. Again, and punished by the Khalifa of the times. And it was over um, a legal opinion that he had. The, the, the governor wanted Imam Malik to enable him, give him a fatwa that would justify something that he wanted. And Imam Malik refused to follow, so he struck him and he ordered that he be whipped to the extent that uh, Imam Malik's um, arms, he was paralyzed from his arms, right? and wa baqiya and he was he stayed sick um, until the very last of his days and um, and it's a di- there's a difference of opinion as to why this was one of the one of the opinions says that what happened was he gave a fatwa um, that uh, the talaq of someone compelled to give it is um, is it does not count and this this upset the khalifa at the time for very uh, for specific reasons, um, and you know, so anyway, it shows you that the the imams, and the same thing with Imam Shafii, by the way, he was also tested in his faith. These imams were imams in din and dunya. They were great models for the ummah. They had to endure. They were committed to their messages. They strongly believed in what they upheld, and uh, and this is why we learn from their example. Their great example, Imam Shafii. Among the four imams, so now we're on the third imam, Imam Shafii. He was the only one of these four imams who was from Quraysh. He is his uh, uh, his origins go back to Quraysh, and he's actually sharif from the uh, his link goes back to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and um, uh, and he meets with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi in I believe it was the sixth ancestor to him. Two of his ancestors were companions. Shafi' and Sa'ib. Why do we call him Shafi'i? Why? Because um, he, one of his ancestors was named Shafi'i. And that was a Sahabi. He was So we have a Sa'ib, who was the father of a Shafir. Uh He was born pre-Islam. And he accepted Islam. His son, a Shafi'i, or Shafi' was born into Islam. His son Shafi' was born into Islam. Imam Shafi' likes to be attributed to Shafi' because he was his ancestor who did not witness any part of Jahiliyyah, uh, any part of the pre-Islamic times. So that's why he is referred to as Imam Shafii, a- a- attribution to his uh, ancestor who was a companion of the Prophet and who witnessed Badr um, along with uh, his father Assaib. So, uh, Imam Shafri was born in Gaza, actually. Uh, he actually was born in Gaza. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, give relief to the people of Gaza. Allahumma ameen. And he made his way to study in Mecca and Medina. Right? He first went to Mecca. And he memorized the Qur'an at a very young age. And then he was left to one of the... Arab tribes in the rural areas uh, around, they're known as the tribe of Hudayl. He learned from them character, Arabic language, and he became a master of Arabic language, and he became a master of the Arabic values and rimaya and hunting and, um, and, and, and the general things that were taught in the badia, in the rural areas. And then he came to Medina, where he was a student of Imam Malik, right? So, he had a very young age. He went, in fact, the story says that um, uh, he, he memorized the book Al-Muatta' of Imam Malik in nine days. He had, you know, brilliant memory. Again, when you don't have uh, Facebook or um, iPhone or uh, social media, or t v shows uh you could do a whole lot by the way it 's not like they were able to memorize these things because they were you know different you know it's because their brains weren't fried you know our brain our brains are like french fries right because of all of the social media exposure that we get you know we can 't even read more of a paragraph more than a paragraph at a time because we're used to fast consumption of things again. Our brains become fried because of what you know, uh, that what these gadgets have done to us. So Imam Shafi'i he memorized it in nine days, and he went to Medina, and he wanted to um, uh, learn from Imam Malik directly. So he mem- he knocked on Imam Malik's door, and Imam Malik opened the door for him, and he saw a young boy. Was Imam, Sh- I think he was like nine years old at the time. Young boy, he was like, okay, I'll bring you a teacher who will teach you. Uh, I'll I'll bring you someone to teach you, one of my students. And he insisted, no, uh, I want to read to you. He said, I've memorized your muwatta. So he read to him, al-muwatta, hadith after hadith, page after page, and Imam Malik was so uh, impressed with his great scholarship that he took him as his direct student and he stayed with Imam Malik until he passed away, and then he went and transitioned to Iraq, and he learned from the people of Iraq, and his first madhhab was in Iraq, and then the last, last, last four years of his life, he uh, went to Egypt, and he passed away in Egypt, and his grave is now still in Egypt, um, it's now known as, uh, there's an area that's known, where uh, there's the grave of Imam al-Shafi'i, and then we have Imam Ahmed after that, who was one of the great, brilliant scholars of the past. Great scholar of hadith. Great example. He was in a time frame where there was massive trials for the ummah by corrupt leadership. The Mu'tazilites had um, uh, assumed the Khilafa, and they imposed their ideology and beliefs upon the ummah. And they exposed the Imam Malik to such torture and punishment. Yet he endured all of the scholars or many of the scholars of his time Fell prey to the fitna and they could not withstand it. They gave up. They could not, um, with, uh, they, they gave up to whatever the Khalifa wanted them to say. Imam Malik did not. He refused. He insisted and he insisted. And the Khalifa had no, had nothing to do for him but to try to um, stop him from being able to teach. So Imam Malik, Imam Ahmad actually had to endure many years and this was under Al mamun so this was under Ma'moon. Uh, we mentioned his name here, the Khalifa Al-Ma'moon. This last one, the seventh Abbasid Khalifa. This was at a very, very difficult time in the p- history of the Ummah. al mamun was not like his predecessors, Harun al-Rashid and Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. He was not like them at all, right? So he was one of the ones who, um, he, he, you know, tested Imam Malik. It continued on to the, the next Khalifa after that, Al-Mu'tasim and Al-Watheq, and these all, uh, but you know, again, Imam, this is the thing that they most know about Imam Ahmad, about his enduring patience in a time of great trial for the Ummah. And there's much more to be said about their lives, we don't really have the time to spend, so I'm going to have to stop at that subject, but I want to go into the next subject. Next subject that we have is how to approach fiqh. Why do scholars differ? What is Islamic law? Right. Now this slide here, Usul um, and al-hukm al These are details that you learn when you study the principles of Islamic law. What are hukm taklifi? What's hukm wad'i? If you've taken a fiqh class with me, the fiqh of salah, you know these things. Fard, wajib, mandoob, mubah, Makruh, haram. These terminology, when we have an usul fiqh course, you will get a dose of this in detail. What is a cause? What is a preventer? What is a rukhsa? All these things. So we're not really going to go over them now. Um, and we're not going to go over the uh, applications. Right, here's here's one application I'll go over for you. So, here, like, look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O oh, you who have believed, this is slide uh, number, where's the number? Uh, 50, 90, what? Uh, oops. Uh, this is slide number, you have the guys that have the number for this one? 81? Alright. It says, O you who have believed, do not consume usury doubled and multiplied, but fear Allah that you may be successful. When you read this verse, what does it say to you? What does it say to you? Do not consume usury doubled and multiplied. Don't consume usury in exponential amounts. How are you going to understand this when I say it to you? What? Right. That's how you'd understand it. It means that riba is haram, what's in multiplied amounts. But what if it's in small amounts? How do I understand it? Why does the Qur'an say this? Does it mean that 1% or 2% or 3% is okay? Now, of course, the answer to this is no. But, why does the Qur'an then say this? Doubled and multiplied. It is speaking to the reality of the times, of people of Mecca, and the oppression of the people of Quraysh. They used to have... um, uh, in exponential amounts, and it was a very oppressive system. So, this is what Allah is condemning here not to allow. So, this is Khurrija Makhraj al Ghalib. This is speaking to the dominant circumstance of the time, not to justify the smaller percentages, but to speak to how obscene what the people of Quraysh were doing. They were subjugating people financially. So, in Usul al fiqh, you would understand that this description is, um, is, you cannot infer a meaning from here. Why? Because the Quran's not meaning to specify exponential amounts here, it's meaning to condemn a corrupt reality. You got it? So, this is like one example of how just sticking to the letter of the Quran would not give you guidance on what you're supposed to understand here, right? So, Usul al fiqh here shows you. Um, uh, so how to understand texts How to deconstruct them And how to arrive at fiqh conclusions through them All right. Now that's going to be for another time Because we don't have time to go over this in detail All of these are applications of usul fiqh Usul fiqh is one of those beautiful sciences um, That gives you again a principled approach to fiqh It gives you through principles how you know what defines, and this is actually why it was reduced to four madhabs, right? Because when usul al-fiqh came into play, it reduced the parameters of scholarly difference. Uh, it, you know, it became about principles as opposed to specific rulings. And when you take it back to the principles, though the principles are limited, and then. The rulings follow that, right? But we don't have time to go over this, so I'm going to leave it, inshallah. Another source of Islamic law, so we have uh, Qur'an, sunnah. We have ijma, We have consensus. And we have this mentioned in the Qur'an. And whoever opposes the messenger after guidance has come clear to him and follows other than the way of the believers, we will give him what he has taken, right? Other than the way of the believers. This is speaking to us about what this principle called ijma. Again, you learn you learn this in usul al-fiqh, so we're not going to really stick with that right now. Then you have also another one. It's called an analogical deduction, qiyas. It's one of the principles and one of the sources of Islamic law. It it takes us to the reasons behind the legal rulings. The reasons behind the legal rulings. Again. You'll learn this more in Usul al-Fiqh. Where does this all come from? The Prophet وسلم, taught us this thing through what we called earlier Ijtihad. When the Messenger of Allah وسلم, sent Mu'adh to Yemen, Mu'adh bin Jabal, he said, how will you judge <coughs> when, the, when the occasion of deciding a case arises? He said, I'll judge according to the book of Allah. He said, what if you don't find it there? Then he said, The sunnah of the Prophet. He said, What if you don't find it there? He said, I shall do my best to form an opinion and I shall not spare no effort. Right? So then the Prophet uh, tapped him on the chest and he was so happy and he said, Alhamdulillah, the one who guided the messenger of the messenger of Allah to what is most pleasing to Allah and his messenger. So, Ijtihad in this hadith. This reported by Sunan Abidawood teaches us ijtihad is part of Islam. It's needed to address new circumstances. All of this is again is covered in usul fiqh, the guiding principles, (coughs) who is the lawgiver, uh, relationship between reason and revelation. All of these are things that we're not really going to go into here. Now here there's an important thing on this slide, slide 89. We're getting close to the very end of this session. It says, Every act in life has a fiqh ruling applying to it. Even matters which sacred law did not address. The default ruling is permissibility and prohibitions do not extend beyond the proof text except with clear evidence. I need evidence to say something is haram or say something is halal. But the default in things is that they are mubah until proven otherwise, right. The role of Usul Fiqh is in reducing the scope of scholarly difference. How? Again, you'll have one principle that applies to many different situations. So if I debate the principle, and I come to a certain conclusion here, logically it's gonna follow all those side issues. Right? So when I make the difference of opinion about the principles, I might have one or two or three opinions about the principle. Instead of having 20 different opinions on the side issues. No, the principle is what guides to the conclusions. Right? So that's how usul al-fiqh makes the discussion one that is... So Usul al-fiqh is the philosophy of Islamic law. Right? When we're discussing the philosophy of law, it makes the discussion much more framed... Right? I know that this needs to be understood. You'll understand it more in a course on usul fiqh. This is just meant to give you a dose of that. Again, what are madhahib? How many madhahibs are there? Must I pick one? Is there one correct madhahib? Or can there be multiple correct answers? Look at this here. Madhahib are a product of the reality of the texts of the Quran and Sunnah. What does that mean? Because the Quran and Sunnah could be interpreted in different ways, we're going to have different conclusions in the way they can be understood. Right? How many madhabs are there? As we said, historically there were many. But ultimately, they arrived at four because of the uh the 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 the, the books that were written, the students that spread the knowledge, the realities of leadership, and which ones were adopted by um, the khulafa, and so on and so forth. Must I pick one? Well, there's something that you must not do, and that's be a fatwa shopper. If you become a student of knowledge, in order for your knowledge to be consistent, it should be according to one madhhab primarily, and then after this, you branch out. In certain situations, it's too difficult to follow this, I need uh, exemption, I need a form of ease. So I go to another madhab after that, find, looking for answers and looking for guidance. So they say that for the ammi, the layperson, they say, لا لا. مذهب The layperson has no madhab. His madhab is the madhab of his mufti, whoever he goes to, to ask fiqhi questions. The student of knowledge, his madhab, or he should base his knowledge on one madhab, and then as he grows in knowledge continue to expand after that. Now here, look, they say that, we're going to come back to this principle actually, matters of legitimate scholarly differences are not subject to objection. Look at this, pay attention. How to approach fiqh. Whenever I'm looking at an evidence in Islamic law, I'm going to try to answer two questions. How authentic is it? And what does it refer to? What does it mean? How is it understood? How authentic is it? And how is it understood? In terms of authenticity, it's either certain qat'i, like a verse in the Quran. If someone says, well, you know what? I'm not really sure if Surah Al-Ikhlas is part of the Quran. Maybe it's not part of the Quran, right? someone says this, what? They're not Muslim, right? If someone denies Surah Al-Ikhlas as being part of the Quran, they're not Muslim, right? Um, uh, I don't like Surat At-Tawbah, it's too aggressive, right? So, it, you know, it speaks very, very harshly. I don't think it's from the Qur'an. Right? I think some other people must have wrote Surat At-Tawbah, right? If someone says that, they're not Muslim, okay? Because it's certain in its authenticity. Then you have probable, hadith is mostly probable in its authenticity. What does that mean? It's not at the level of the Qur'an. The Qur'an is generationally transmitted. The hadith, you'll find solitary narrations. You'll find sahih, hasan, and da'if. You'll find fabricated hadiths. They're not at the highest level of authenticity, but they're still actionable and practiced. Right? In terms of indication and how it is understood, now here you're going to find something interesting. What do you think? Is, the mo- is most of the Qur'an clear-cut in its understanding? Yes or no? Say, raise your hand if you say yes. Raise your hand if you say no. Okay, most people said no. They say that the Quran is hamal aujah. Why do you think we have books of tafsir? Why do you think you have a book tafsir Qurtubi in twenty volumes, right? Why do you think we have all of this? Why? Because it is subject to interpretation. How do you understand that? Well, is it like? Is it is this required or is this uh, recommended uh, is, it, is it obligatory here or is it just urging me to do something right how can I understand this most of the Quran is vanni is probable in the way it's understood that's why we have multiple interpretations and most of the Sunnah is the same so that's why we have madhahib. In brief, that's why we have madhahib. And now, why do scholars differ? You find this, there's so much here, um, not enough time to go over it. You can read it on your own. Sometimes it's because of a hadith. Sometimes it's because the authenticity of the hadith. Sometimes it's because of the understanding of the hadith. Sometimes it's because of two conflicting reports. One in the Quran and one in the Sunnah, Right? Sometimes it's because they're unaware of the hadith. And you find examples for you throughout here. Um, and, and sometimes it's because of uh, one madhhab that saying that it's general, and another one saying it's specific. One saying that it's abrogated. Um, uh, different methods in reconciling between the evidences. All of these are differences of reasons why scholars differ. This is pretty much... Uh, you know, a very abridged explanation of this last section. We weren't able to give it its thorough explanation because the limitations on time. And I could see from your faces that you're very exhausted. Um, But hopefully you've benefited something from this course. And hopefully it gave you a dose and you could go back and take the time and read the stuff on your own. Take it all in. If you have questions, I'm here. You could always ask, inshallah. You could reach out and... um, and like I said, we want to make this a culture in our community. We want to um, have more courses, more intensives. We want the, our, our uh, deen and our iltizam to be based on commitment to Allah. And commitment to the Prophet through and amal, through knowledge and action. This is our hope and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us achieve that. And before we conclude, does anyone have any questions that they would like to ask? Any questions they would like to ask? Huh any any questions yes general um, so I about how to yes Look, um, uh, the, when it comes to celebrations, uh, it, 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 it's, we're going to ask the question, is it a matter of religious devotion? Is it a ibadah or not? If we're talking about a celebration that it's a form of religious devotion, then we're going to be very, very restrictive in that. Like, can a Muslim go ahead and celebrate Christmas? No, of course not, right? Um, uh, what if it's something that is just out of convenience and culture, like a baby shower, like someone has a baby, people want to give them a gift. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever, right? Uh, what if it's out of convenience like this past Thanksgiving? Um, people, it's the day off. People want to have a dinner as a family. And they've made it their own little subculture, right? They're not necessarily whatever. They might even like turkey. They might not like it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But the point is it's a time that people are off and they want to take advantage of it. It's not a religious holiday. Uh, absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. When it comes to birthdays, now we have st- come, it's like sort of on a philosophical level, we need to be careful. Because there are certain things in birthdays that are not necessarily positive on a philosophical level, right? Now, of course, giving a gift to your child on that day or, you know, doing a nice gesture to them or, like, making them feel happy on... There's nothing wrong with that. But making it become where you're, you know, it becomes this uh, exaggerated, uh, expensive type of thing that uh, exhausts people... Um, it, that's something that's against this. That's not something that's recommended or encouraged. Yeah. What? Baby showers? No. No, it's not a matter of worship, so it's not going to be a matter of imitation. If it was a matter of worship, then we're going to say, yeah, it's a matter of imitation birthdays borderline you'll find some people who have aggressive takes against it and then other people who have a middle opinion on it and you know you'll find different takes on it but that's the that's what we go back to yeah yes So, who copies others in what? That's the question. Now, like, so, for example, uh, if we, I'm from a certain country and we have an Independence Day, and we want to make this great festival because we're remembering our independence from our oppressive rulers, right? Are we going to say, Eid l- al is haram? Independence Day is haram? No. Why? What the, what, you know, the, wh- what's what in it is religious for us to condemn it? So, This hadith you're talking about is in religious matters. Right? Okay? So, like I said, Thanksgiving depends on, like, like why, why is someone celebrating it? People celebrate it out of convenience, not out of devotion. Right? I'm off of work. What does it mean to celebrate it? So if someone's going to say, having a dinner spread with kufta, dawali, or biryani on Thanksgiving is haram. Why? Because you can't. The kuffar are celebrating this day. I will tell him, your head's full of stuffed potatoes. That's what it is, right? Stuffed potatoes in here, right? Because I'm free off of work. My uncle, my aunt, my family wants to come together. What's wrong with this? This is something that's always recommended. But something I can't always do, right? So this is not a religious holiday. If someone wants to gather together, right? They're doing it because of Thanksgiving, right? But we know it's Eid al-Khiyana. We know, we know it's actually the, the, the celebration of betrayal. When they betrayed the Native Americans and they took their lands. It's a celebration that actually goes against shukur. But I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm not, do you really, does anyone here really think of Native Americans and settlers and all that stuff when they're eating their biryani? Okay, now is someone gonna tell you turkey is haram? Okay, now here again on a philosophical level, everyone, when you explain it to them, all right, uh, we know that the origins of this day off are not positive okay, there's a sale on turkeys. You're going to tell me turkey is haram because kuffar are eating turkey? All right? No. If you love turkey, go ahead, and eat turkey. Right? If you don't love turkey, don't eat turkey. All right? So, <laughs> you know, it's, this is not how we understand these things. That's why I'm going to tell We didn't get a chance to get through this. But there are people who have a very hard line, very narrow-minded approach to fiqh that is so dismissive and so shallow that it goes against everything that we learned today. This, this, is, th- this approach, this hardline approach to fiqh, where it just makes it, ah, oh, hadith and I'm going to dismiss, oh, there's no madahib. Ah, oh, Imam Shafi'i was wrong on this number of issues. Imam Abu Hanifa was weak in hadith. These people are like a virus for the ummah, a cancer upon the ummah. They demolish the beautiful tradition that has been developed over centuries, right? So this is my advice, wallah alam. But we didn't get a chance to go into it more. Uh, I have to stop uh, in two minutes because I have to go make wudu. Uh, leave it to later. So let's stop here. Subhanakallah, bihamdik, nashadu wa ilaha <in Hebrew> illa'at, nastauffiruka, wa natubu ilayk. Jazakumullah khair, please don't forget to fill the survey. Barakallah fiqum. Salam alaykum.